We will, uh, Lord willing, get as far as chapter um, 30, verse 24. So good breaking spot right there in the middle of the next chapter. If we get there, if we don't, um, that's okay. The Lord knows. But let's again just go to him in prayer and ask him to uh, bless the time that we have tonight in his word. Oh, Father, we just thank you so much for... Uh, just what we get to do right now, Lord, personally, your word has been to me uh, the greatest, the greatest thing, oh Lord, and without your word, I, I don't know where I would be right now, and so uh, I thank you, Lord, for the counsels, I thank you for the truths, I thank you for the way that you tuck so much inside so little, and I thank you, Lord, for giving me this incredible privilege to be able to share and communicate the things that you show me, and the things that I've learned and heard from others, and Lord, we're asking tonight that you would give us one heart and one mind, that the things that your spirit wants to speak and communicate from this portion of Jacob's life and testimony, that, Lord, we would hear it, that the message would get into our heart, that it would affect our life, that it would change our direction, that it would do everything that it needs to do inside of our hearts. And so we give ourselves to you tonight, O Lord, and we ask that you would have free course in this place to do your will. We're grateful, Lord, for this privilege, and we ask for your blessing. Breathe upon your word, anointed to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 29, verse 1, it says, Then Jacob went on his journey, and he came into the land of the people of the east. Now, we touched on this verse very briefly at the end of our study last week, and what this really represents for me as I look at it here is the uh, official beginning of Jacob's real walk with the Lord. You know, the Bible teaches that, uh, that the Christian or the child of God uh, literally has two existences. We are born physically. Jesus said that everyone is born of water, and it speaks of the physical birth. And we all come into this world in the physical uh, way that we do, and we all have that. But the Bible teaches that when we come in physically, that we are alienated from God. We are separated from his life. We don't know him. We're apart from him. We're fallen. We're sinners. We sin because we're sinners in that position. But by the grace of God and by the persistence of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, he knocks upon our hearts, he gets our attention, and he brings us under the conviction of our sinful condition. And when we're in that place of conviction, God gets our attention and he leads us to Jesus Christ. And whether he does that by the sharing of someone who leads us the way or whatever means that God uses, ultimately in conviction, he brings us to the cross. And when we come to the cross, confessing our sin and calling upon the Lord, his spirit, who was outside drawing and convincing, now comes inside and he saves and seals us and we become children of God. It's what the Bible calls being born again. We're born the second time. And so for every child of God, there are two existences, born after the flesh and then we're born after the spirit. Now at the moment we come to him and we are born again, we begin what the Bible calls a pilgrimage. We set our feet upon a path. God has a path that's marked out for us that we will walk from the time that we come to know him until the time that he calls us home. And this here, Genesis 29 verse 1, marks the beginning of Jacob's pilgrimage, Jacob's path. At the end of his life, when Jacob stands before the Pharaoh of Egypt, in Genesis chapter 47 verse 9, 
He will speak of this and he will say that the years of my pilgrimage have been, and then he will give the number of the years that he walked uh, with the Lord on the earth. And he calls his life a pilgrimage. In the New Testament book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, Peter speaks of you and I, the Christian. And he says, but we are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and all of those things kind of redundantly saying that we have been separated from the mass of humanity and called unto God, that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so the New Testament ascribes this concept of pilgrimage and being pilgrims to every one of God's people that have been born again. He has a path for us. He has marked it out. He has set our feet upon it. And now we begin it once we know him. And along the way, he has things that he's going to accomplish in our lives, experiences, duties and tasks, works of service, happenings, all of that that's going to happen to us before he calls us home, all of those things serving his purposes to make us who we're to be in Christ Jesus and to prepare us for heaven. And so we get to see Jacob as we follow him now as he begins really walking with the Lord. And the amazing thing is that as we look at his experiences, we see ourselves. As we see the things that he went through, Somehow there's a reflection of the same things being worked in and out of our lives that we see in Jacob. And that's the value of these testimonies and these characters that we see portrayed here on the pages of Scripture. And so it says that Jacob went on his journey. He began his journey even as we also have our own. And it tells us that he came into the land of the people of the east. And now it begins in verse 2. It says, And he looked, and behold, a well in the field... And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and they watered the sheep, and then they put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brothers, whence be ye, or where are you from? And they said, From Haran. We are. Now remember, that's where Jacob is headed to. And so he, not knowing where he is, asks these men, they tell him, we're from Haran. And he said unto them, well, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said unto them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And behold, Rachel, his daughter, comes with the sheep. She'll be one of the flock leaders that are coming to water their sheep. You'll see his daughter in just a few minutes if you hang around. And he said, lo, it is yet high day. Neither is it time that the cattle should be gathered together, water the sheep, and then go and feed them. I mean, this doesn't make sense what you're doing right here. I mean, this isn't how 
You're supposed to tend to sheep. This is the part of the day when they graze in the fields. If they need water, give them water and then let them go. Why are you guys standing around? And they said, we cannot until all the flocks be gathered together until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. He says, well, this isn't the custom. We wait here at this time of the day till all the flocks come. And then we wait for those that roll the stone away to roll the stone away. Then we do our business and then we go. That's the custom of this place. Maybe you're not so much used to that. So we see Jacob now. He comes out of Beersheba in the land of Canaan. And he moves now up into the northern areas outside of the land into the area of Haran where Abraham had initially come out of when his father had died. He had been sent there by his father Isaac to go and find a bride, hopefully from Laban's sons. And so he comes into this area. Now I find it interesting that when he comes into the place, the first thing that he comes to is a well. We see this over and over again in the scriptures. The well always speaks of the place of spiritual refreshing. And he comes to that place. Maybe he even sought out that place, and that's where he comes to. But this particular well is interesting. There's a few characteristics about it. First of all, we see that there are flocks that have been gathered all around the well that are waiting for the time when the water will be released. And we see that they're specifically waiting until they, whoever they are, come roll the stone away, and then the water is released... The flocks are watered, and then the stone is reset upon the, 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 the cap of it. So water comes when the stone is rolled, but there's a dependence of these pastors and of these sheep to wait until someone else comes and opens up the flow, and then the waters come, and then they go and they uh, uh, water the flocks. First of all, I would say on this that any time that you find yourself in a new area, look for the well. Even if it's just something as simple as a new job or a new neighborhood in the same location or area where you already live, always look for the well, the place of spiritual refreshing, the place where spiritual things happen. If you want to be led of the Lord, if you want to be in His will, then the place to be is near the well. But you don't want the kind of well that Jacob found right here. And we're going to see that Jacob deals with that in just a minute. What kind of well is that? It's the kind of well where you're dependent on someone else to draw the water. That's not the way that it's supposed to work in the things of God. See, there's a season in the life of every saint, of every Christian. That is, at the beginning of our walk with God, when we are very much, as baby Christians, dependent on others to kind of roll the stone away, as it were, and bring the water forth out to us. Peter wrote again in 1 Peter, it's the same chapter, it's 1 Peter chapter 2 that we already quoted from. He said in the second verse of that chapter, he said, as newborn babies, that is new Christians, he said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. The milk of the word is always the word that's been processed by someone else and then broken down and shared with you via their speech or their books or their writings or their radio program or whatever else it might be. That's always the milk of the word. That's what milk is. Milk is food that's been digested by somebody else, reprocessed and packaged into food for someone else. That's what we're doing right now. This is, in a sense, the milk of the word. Now I just try to throw a piece of meat out for the meat eaters in the group, you know. 
But it's the milk of the word because it's been processed by someone else. And there's a season in our lives where we need that because we're learning how to hear God's voice. We're learning how to discern his word. We're learning how to find the water, as it were. But the Bible calls us to move out of that stage as quickly as we can and to grow up to the point where we're no longer dependent on someone else to roll the stone away from the well of the mouth and to bring water forth for us. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. He said that we, henceforth, from now on, be no longer children tossed to and fro and carried around with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. Circle those words if you're turning there in your Bible or at least in your mind that we might grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That we're to move out of the stages of spiritual infancy where we're dependent on someone else to feed and water us, and we're to move to spiritual maturity, and we're to find water in the well of our own. Now, how do we do that? Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, In the last day, the great day of the feast that Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And then it goes on to say that he spoke this of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given at that time, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So how is it that we move out of spiritual infancy and learn how to draw the water for ourselves? You know what we do is we go to the rock. Jesus called himself the rock of our salvation. And in a sense, we roll the stone away by coming to him ourselves, not through the medium of a pastor or someone who is a spiritual mentor in our lives or another author or person or parent, but we come to Jesus by faith. He that believe on him should receive. And we say, Lord, I thirst. I want to know you. I want to be watered by your spirit myself. I talk to people all the time that say, I don't feel God's presence out there the same way I feel God's presence in here. I don't get from the word of God out there or in my devotion time the same way that I get from God in my devotion time or Bible time when I'm in church. And here's my word to you is that you should and you can. And the answer is to come to Jesus by faith and say, Lord, I'm coming to the well, and by faith I'm rolling the stone away, not dependent on someone else, and I'm asking for water of you, not at a set time when they roll the stone away, but Lord, every day, every moment, even now, Lord Jesus, I need to hear your voice. I need to meet with you. And the Bible assures us and declares that they should or shall receive the Spirit who believe on Jesus. And so the waters of refreshing, the waters of feeding, as it were, the water of the word, as it's called in Ephesians chapter 5, is the birthright of the Christian. And God calls us to move beyond infancy and into maturity. Now, church doesn't become obsolete at that point. It just takes on a new dimension. No longer is it about getting my needs met, but it's about seeing someone else's need and meeting that need in the way that God has equipped me uniquely to do. Now, amazingly, how does Jacob handle this? He rolls the stone away himself. 
It says in verse 9 that while he yet spake with them, the men of Haran, it says that Rachel came with her father's sheep and she kept them. And it came to pass that when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, his uncle, that Jacob drew near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now this is a bold move. He completely ignores the custom and the timing of the culture and the people of the area. He sees Rachel. His heart is uplifted. He's moved as we're going to see, you know, motivated, if you would. We'll see why in just a minute. And in a show of superhuman strength, he by himself rolls the stone away that the waters of the well might then be removed. See, I find it interesting, the motivation of Jacob in removing the mouth of the well, the stone that sealed the well, we're going to see that it's love. He sees Rachel and he's immediately in love with her. And the love that he has for her motivates him to roll the stone away. And listen, for you and I, you say, well, what's my motivation for seeking the well that God gives, the water that God gives? It's got to be the love of Christ. See, if the reward isn't worth the effort, then we don't do the work. Isn't that the way we are as human beings? Why do we do what we do? Because of what we're, you know, we're going to receive something from it. And so even now, as I talk to you about rolling the stone away from the well, going to Jesus and seeking the water of him. Some of you might be eager going like, well, I'm just not motivated to do that. Well, the answer is that you need to be experiencing his love in a greater way. Coming to him and saying, Lord, I need to know you. I need to know the treasure of this. I need to be moved and, and have a desire for more of you in my life. Jacob, motivated by love, he goes and he rolls the stone away. Amazing here. And it says he goes on from there, talk about boldness, verse 11. And it says that Jacob kissed Rachel and he lifted up his voice and he wept. Now, Jacob, in a sense, is a man after my own heart. Not because he went and kissed a stranger. That's not the idea. But here's why. Because you can see already that Jacob lives by the premise, it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Right? He, he doesn't ask if he can roll the stone away. He just does it. He says, I'll deal with the consequences later, custom or not. He sees Rachel and he goes, oh my goodness. I claim it. Claim it. I claim that's mine. He goes over. And, and this is probably some kind of a platonic thing. It's, it's probably some kind of, you know, acceptable thing. I'm sure he didn't, you know, uh, overstep his boundaries, you know, or else he would have been accosted by the other shepherds that were there, no doubt. But it says that he kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice, and wept. And probably the reason for his emotional response is because, quite sincerely, he's just feeling like he's being led of the Lord. I mean, he's been on this long journey, heading up from, from the south. He doesn't really even know where he is. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, he finds out that he's in the perfect will of God. Don't you love it when that happens? I mean, that, that happens to us, doesn't it? Like, sometimes we, we take this long trek through this wilderness, we feel like we haven't seen or heard from God in, in ages, and we don't know where we are. We feel like we've just been wandering without direction, on our own, our own will. And then God does something, and we kind of come to this milestone where we realize that we're right exactly where God wants us to be. And it's such a blessing. It's an emotional thing when we say, thank God I'm where, where I'm supposed to be on things. And I sense that's what's going on in Jacob right now. He sees Rachel. It's Laban's daughter. She's the 
beautiful as we're going to see and he's just feeling like lord thank you you're keeping your word you're keeping your promise you're leading me and so jacob told rachel that he was her father's brother and the idea there is nephew it's just her kin part of the family and that he was rebecca's son and she ran and she told her father now no doubt rachel has heard the story of what happened to rebecca you know her um grand aunt or whatever and when when isaac's servant or abraham's servant came and wooed her and she came and no doubt rachel waiting for the day when god would bring someone into her life and now as jacob comes and she finds out that he's the son of isaac and the of rebecca you know her cousin which in that day as we talked about was totally normal you know she rejoices and she runs to tell her father And it came to pass that when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And then he, that is Jacob, told Laban all these things. Hey, I've got 97 years of history to fill you up on. That's how long it's been since Rachel, I mean, Rebecca, was taken by the servant of Abraham all those years previously. And so right here, just in that one phrase, Jacob fills Laban in on everything that took place. Yes, Rebecca came. She married Isaac. She was barren for 20 years. And then finally God heard their prayer and they gave birth to twins. There's me and Esau and he's hairy and I'm, I'm a creep, you know. And, and, and then this happened and I stole the blessing and it was transferred to me and now I'm up here because and we don't know how much he told them. But he told him enough that it says that Laban, verse 14, said unto him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. You are definitely just like me. And we're going to find out he is. (laughs) Laban is just like Jacob. He goes, You are my bone and my flesh. And it says that he abode with him for the space of a month. So these two initially hit it off great. There's something working here. And it says that Laban said unto Jacob, because you are my brother, that is part of my family, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Listen, you're a shepherd. I'm a shepherd. You obviously know something about keeping sheep. If you're going to serve with me, you shouldn't be doing it for nothing. What do you want to get paid? Now, that's great, isn't it? When your boss says, hey, name your price, you know. And it says that Laban had two daughters. Now remember, what is Jacob's mission? His mission is to take a wife from the daughters of Laban. No doubt he has a desire to do that, even though he's been pointed by his parents to. And it says that he had two daughters, and the name of the elder was Leah. Now the name Leah means languishing, wearying, exhausting. That's what the name means. And in the Bible, you'll always find that the names are reflective of the nature of the person uh, that, it's, that it is attached to. And so the name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And the word Rachel just means little lamb or you lamb. And it says that Leah was tender-eyed. Now, when you're God, and you want to communicate something and you want to be as gracious as possible, how do you do that? I mean, God has all kinds of things that he has to work out on things. 
But what it means here, when it says that Leah was tender-eyed, the word tender literally means that she is weak of heart, shy, fearful, or soft. That's what the word tender means. Uh, Weak of heart, shy, fearful, and soft. And when it talks about her being eyed, it kind of speaks that the, the reflection of her appearance or the, um, the outwardness of her appearance was a reflection of what she was in her heart. So she's kind of like a timid, she's shy. The idea is that she's not absolutely beautiful as we're going to see the contrast with Rachel. She's not the favored one. She's not the desirable uh, one of the two. And that's what's being communicated here. She's tender-eyed or weak-eyed. But in contrast to that, verse 17, it says, but Rachel, the younger sister, that she was beautiful and well-favored. Now, the word beautiful in the Hebrew language is actually two words. That one word beautiful is two words. One of those is beautiful and the other one is shape. And so they took those two words, beautiful shape, and they just put them together into the one word beautiful. So it speaks of her outward appearance is that she was beautiful to look upon and then second of all that she was well favored and the word favored actually is translated sight or vision so the same way it says that leah was tender-eyed it's saying that when it says that rachel was beautiful and well favored it's saying that in her face there was also a reflection of what she was on the inside so in other words what he's saying is that she's the total package Just Rachel has everything that a man would want in a woman. And so there's Leah and there's Rachel. And it says that Jacob, verse 18, loved Rachel. That's who he was interested in. It's who he wanted. And he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now, here's something that interests me. Is that remember when, remember when Isaac, or I'm sorry, Abraham sent the servant to go and find Rebekah? Remember, he loaded that servant down with 10 camels, all kinds of money and bracelets and gold and earrings and jewels. And I mean, he loaded him with riches. And and when the servant came to Bethuel and to that family there, he just paid the dowry. He just said, hey, listen, we'll give you bracelets. We'll give you money, whatever you want. You know, we're going to take the woman and we're going back down south. But here, when Jacob is sent himself to go and find a bride... Isaac sends him with nothing. He he doesn't have money. He doesn't have 10 camels laden with spices and the goodness of the land. Now, Isaac had all of those things. We saw that Isaac was a wealthy man. There was much that was passed on from Abe to Isaac and that will be passed on from Isaac to Jacob. But yet Isaac doesn't send Jacob with any of that when he goes up to Haran. And I ask the question, I say, why? Why wouldn't he give him provisions? Why wouldn't he give him what he needs to just buy his way? Why does he have to work for seven years in order to obtain that which his father just bought, you know, in the sense of having a dowry? And I believe that this is from Isaac's perspective, a very spiritually wise thing, is that Isaac realized, Jacob's father, that Jacob needs to have a walk with God. He needs to know what it is to live by faith. He needs to see God raise him up from the ground up. And if I give him everything that he needs, then he's never going to be able to rely upon or see the faithfulness of God, and thus he'll become the kind of person that doesn't depend on God. And Isaac, in his wisdom, said, Jacob, I could send you with much, but I'm going to send you with nothing, so that you can see that you don't belong to me or simply to a heritage. 
but that you yourself belong to God and that he's going to lift you up and raise you up. That's exactly what's going to happen. God is going to raise Jacob up and bless him greatly, but he starts from the ground. And blessed is the man or the woman whom God lets start from the ground and then raise them up that they might know his faithfulness because it teaches us to look to him and not to man to be the meeting of our needs. And thus Jacob says, look, I don't have any money to pay you as a dowry for your daughter. I want her, but I'll work for you for seven years. I'll give you seven years of service if you'll give me Rachel to be my wife. And Laban says in verse 19, well, hey, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Glad you care so much, you know. He says, abide with me. In other words, you're hired, agreed. And so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love that he had to her. Now, this is interesting because we kind of come, I'm not like following strict points tonight, but if I was, this would be my second one. The first one is that we go to the well, right, motivated by love, wanting more of Jesus. Here, the second thing is that we're motivated to serve because of our love as well. What motivated Jacob into service? Now, not just watering, taking care of a flock once, but now I'm going to give my rigor. I'm going to lay down my strength. Why? What motivates him? He's motivated by love. And the power of that love is so strong that the service isn't a burden, and it's seven years seems to him as though it's just a couple of days. And what I suggest to you and I as it relates to, you, to, to our walk with God is that when we know the love of Christ, not only do we drink from the well of His fullness, of all that He gives to us, but we also roll up our sleeves and we serve Him. Because He's worth it. He's a worthy prize. And when love is the motivation for our service, our service is not a burden to Him, and seven years goes by like it's been a couple of days. It's an amazing thing that happens, but it's part of our pilgrim's progress is that we're moved by love to draw from him and then we're moved by love to serve him, to find that area, that thing that he's given us to do, and then to do it faithfully. And when we're motivated by love, man, it's a breeze, not a burden. Time goes by quickly. There's another thing in here for those of you that might be here tonight or listening in some way and you're still single. Young woman, you're waiting for that Jacob, to come into your life. You're waiting for the man that God has prepared for you. I want you to notice what love really looks like. When a man loves a woman, according to the Bible, by the definition of God, he's willing to wait, even if it means seven years, to consummate the marriage before he gets together sexually in union with the woman that he wants. It's such a far different definition than what the world ascribes to love, isn't it? Oh, I love you so much, I can't keep my hands off you. That's not love. That's lust. And it's not the kind of thing that you can build a relationship on or that a relationship will last if that's the foundation of it. True love is willing to wait even if it's a long time. The greatest sign of love is patience. We see that Jacob, for him, seven years was just a couple of days. It was no problem for him to wait at all in this whole thing. I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling because there's a lot of weddings. They come up constantly. 
And I love pre-marriage counseling to sit down with a young couple. And one of the things that I'll tell them, usually in their first session with me, I don't want to pry. I don't want to get into your business. I don't, sometimes I don't really know the couples all that well. And I'll just say, I don't know where you're at on things, but I'll tell you this, is that God's ways are the best ways. And that purity in the time of espousal pays. Because God made marriage. And in that God made marriage, God also made sex. And you can choose. You can either have the blessing of God on that part of your marriage, and you can include him in it. And usually when I say that, they go, include God in it. Yeah, include God in it. Or you could say, well, we'll just keep that separated and we'll keep God away from it. What if the difference between the two is an absolute blessing upon your bedroom as a married couple? Or God just saying, all right, you don't want me there. I'll just stay out of it. I don't have to bless it. I don't have to be a part of it. You don't want me to be a part of it? Listen, and I'll tell this to the young couple. I'll say, you want God to be a part of your married life, your sexual union. Because he can bless it or he can stay away from it. So honor God in the way that he wants things done and invite him into that part of your marriage. Don't leave him out of it. The other thing I'll tell a married couple is this, is that if you choose to put God behind you on this issue and to be sexually active and have sexual contact before you get married, I will tell you there's a consequence. And the consequence is that it will automatically bring trust issues into the relationship as soon as you say, I do. Because whether you realize it or not, as soon as you get married, you're going to have the irking feeling and thought in your mind that if this person that I married and entrusted my love to and my devotion wasn't willing to honor God during the engagement by keeping his commands, then how do I know that that person will honor God after the marriage promise has been made as we grow together as a couple. And every time the spouse goes on a business trip or goes away, the thought is there. Well, what are they doing? Are they where they said they're going to be? Who did they go with? Whereas when a couple makes a commitment and they say, no, we're going to do things God's way and we're not going to mess around before marriage. When that happens, there's an assurance, there's a trust, there's a security. You know what? They were God-honoring. They fought against the temptations of their flesh when it was the strongest and the hardest. I have confidence that they're going to withhold and withstand and honor God even when we're apart now. It's worth it. There's a blessing in waiting and there's also a consequence in not. True love waits. If anyone holds sex over your head as a symbol of love, if you love me, you will. You say, all right, close your eyes. And then roll up your fists like this and say, I've got something for you. And get as far away from that relationship as you can. Because that's not love. Love waits, even if it means seven years. They seem but a few days for the love he had. And so Jacob said unto Laban, I love how God just skips seven years. Don't you wish it worked like that in real life? Like, you know, one breath later, a few comments of the preacher, and seven years have passed, 21 it says that Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter. Did you catch that? He took Leah, tender-eyed, his daughter, 
And he brought her to him, and he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid for a handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this that you have done unto me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Wherefore then have you beguiled me? Circle those words in your Bible. The trickster says, why did you trick me? That's what Jacob says to Laban here. Now, just quite practically, for those of you that might be planning a wedding, this might be a real good reason not to have alcohol at the wedding. Okay, because somehow, and I'm, I mean, this is conjecture. I might be inserting something into the text that's not clearly there. But somehow Jacob had a little bit of an oversight, and he didn't realize who it was that was coming into the tent. Now, granted, these are the days before electricity. Custom was that the woman wore veils over their face. But really, come on, right? I mean, Jacob, I mean, Leah, Rachel, they're two totally different women here. And somehow Jacob is in this place where he gets Leah, spends an entire night with her, and it isn't until the morning when the sun rises that he looks up and he goes, Oh, dear God, I just wasted seven years of my life with the most awful hookup that I could, you know. I mean, what is he thinking if you're Jacob at this time? Like, how did this happen? You know, this is not what I agreed to, you know, huge. And so he storms out of the tent, no regard for Leah. Maybe he has to walk past Rachel, who's going, what in the world happened here? And he comes to Laban and he says, why did you beguile me in the way that you did? Amazing thing that happens here. Here's what happened is that Jacob gets a taste of his own medicine, doesn't he? I want you to consider and think about what happened to Jacob here. Just as Isaac's eyes were dim, remember, Isaac was blind, and Jacob deceived Isaac in the dark, so also now Jacob is deceived in the dark. Just as Isaac was deceived by the elder being replaced for the younger, Jacob is deceived by the elder. I'm sorry, it was with the other way around with, with Isaac, the younger being replaced for the elder. I, Jacob is deceived by the elder being replaced for the younger. Just as Jacob previously pretended to be his brother, now Leah pretends to be her sister. Jacob gets exactly what he gave. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says that God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. No one ever sows one grain or seed and reaps something different. You always reap a harvest of what it is that you initially sowed. And we see Jacob reaping a huge harvest of what he previously had sown in the life of someone else. Let it be a warning to you and I that God is just. God is not mocked. And whatsoever you would have people do to you, do the same unto them. Because understand that whatever you do to someone else, the same thing is going to come back on you in some way. God is going to see to it that that happens. Well, it says, Laban's answer to Jacob when he says, why have you beguiled me? Laban said, it must not be so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. 
You're not so concerned about our customs here, Jacob, as we've seen. But we do have a custom here, and that is that we don't marry off the younger until the older has first been given. And so it wouldn't be right. It would ruin my reputation in the eyes of the men of the place if I were to give Rachel away, and it would be a slap in the face to Leah as well. So fulfill her week. Give her her seven days. Give Leah a proper wedding traditional ceremony. And then we will give you this also for your service. Thanks, Dad. He calls Rachel a this. <laughs> he will give, I, we will give you this also for your service, which you will serve with me yet seven other years. He says, Jacob, I've got good news for you. You got a contract extension. You're going to get two for the price of two. You worked seven years and you got Leah. And now you'll work seven more and I will give you Rachel too. You can have both of my daughters. You came for one. You got two. Aren't you a lucky man? And it says that Jacob did so and he fulfilled her week, the seven days for Leah. And then he gave him Rachel, his daughter, to wife also. Now he didn't have to work seven more years and then get Rachel. He got Rachel at the end of the seven days and then he would have to work. So it's kind of like this pay, pay ahead kind of uh, layaway type of thing. Now, the contract gets real complicated <laughs> in, in, in the second half, you know. But it says that Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah, his handmaid, to be her maid. And it says that he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and he served with him yet seven other years. Now, I can't blame Jacob for this. This, you know, I mean, we all can kind of relate to how we would feel. You know, you, you know, we get it. But it causes problems, right? I mean, if you have two wives and you love one and you don't really care much for the other one, you pay a lot of attention to one and you could care less for the other one, that's going to cause some issues. And so here's where God comes into the picture, verse 31. And it says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated... He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. I want to pause real quick and, and just make a comment about this word that's used there in the verse, the word hated. Oftentimes in the Bible, you'll see that this word hated is used to speak of preference or choice, not strictly like and dislike, like we use it in the English language. When we say that we hate something, we're saying that we have nothing for it. We despise it. We wish it didn't exist. It wasn't part of our life. But when the Bible uses the word hated, it doesn't use it in that way. It just uses the word in, in a context of preference. And we see this over and over again throughout the scriptures. In Romans chapter 9, I think it's right around verse 13, Paul is talking about you know, how God chooses and, and the way that God selects and elects people. And, and he cites a verse from Malachi where he says that God said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And the idea there isn't that God hated Esau, but the idea was that God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. It was a product of his election. Jesus used the word in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he spoke these radical words. He said, listen, he spoke it to you and I. He said, if any man loves father or mother, wife, brothers, sisters, lands, anything more than me, and he doesn't hate those things. If any man doesn't hate his father and mother, hate his kids, hate what he has, and hate his own life, then he's not worthy of me. We go, whoa, Lord. 
Doesn't your word say that we're to love our wives? Now you're telling me I've got to hate my wife? Like, what's going on? No, 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 no. Jesus isn't saying that we're to hate those things. He's saying that when it comes to preference and priority, God is always to be first. And so when the Bible says that Leah was hated, it's not that Jacob hated Leah. We're going to see that he didn't. He loved her. It's going to come all the way full circle. But he preferred Rachel. And thus God intervenes and he opens the womb of Rachel but, I'm sorry, opens the womb of Leah, but Rachel, it says, was barren. God has a way of just making all things come out in the wash, doesn't he? Man, Mike, Pastor Mike always says here, he says, let the Lord fight your battles. Such wise counsel. God knows. And so Leah conceived, and she bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, this is quite revealing concerning Leah. Leah's issue on things is not her looks, it's not her place in life, it's not the lot that she's been given. The big problem that Leah have, has is the source of her contentment and her satisfaction. She's looking to her husband or to a human being to fulfill the need that she has internally. and She reveals it here by the way she names her son. She says, surely the Lord has looked upon my affliction and now, the, that, now my husband will love me. Problem is, it doesn't work. The more pressure she puts, the more she tries to draw from him something that's just not there, he pushes away the more. It doesn't happen. And so she conceived again and she bore a son and she said, because the Lord has heard that I was hated, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon means hearing. God has heard me. God gave me another son. Now my husband won't hate me anymore. Now he'll love me. Now I'll get what I've always wanted from my man. And then in verse 34, it says she conceived again and she bare a son and said, now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Levi means joined, that we'll be joined together. Finally, this relationship that I've been craving to have with my husband, finally I'm going to have it because now I have given him the thing that he would want. problem is that's not what he wanted. She was projecting the thing that was good to her upon him, and it didn't work. But in verse 35, the most glorious thing that could ever happen to a human being happens. It says that she conceived again, and she bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and she left off bearing. See, something finally clicks in Leah that hopefully will one day click in all of us. And that is that there is only one thing in all of the world, all of the universe, that can satisfy a human soul. And that is a relationship with the true and the living God. We are called to be satisfied completely in Him. And any other thing that we try to attach ourselves to as a source for our satisfaction is always going to come up empty. The more we try to find satisfaction in that thing, the more that satisfaction will elude us. It gets away. And it isn't until we come to the place that we realize that satisfaction cannot come in the physical plane. We say, Lord, it can only come from you. And we turn our heart and our attention completely to him. Lord, if this thing that I've been wanting never happens, 
If my husband never loves me the way that I crave to be loved, if the expectation of my future never unfolds the way that I hoped that it would, God, I choose to be filled and satisfied by you alone. And when a person comes to that place where they realize that only God can satisfy, whether the expectation comes or not, and they draw their satisfaction from him, that person has found freedom. And that's what Leah finds here. Now, she's not done yet because she has a flesh, just like you and I have a flesh. And sometimes our victories are three steps forward and two steps back, right? We're going to stop there tonight because we're out of time. And we'll get into this conflict that ensues between Rachel and Leah and the race for children (laughs) as the family of Jacob is about to multiply exponentially as babies are going to be popping out all over the place in the verses to come. But what is it that God has spoken to us tonight? And the musicians can come as we uh, close. Number one is that we are called to grow up. To roll away the stone, as it were, motivated by the prize of knowing Jesus Christ. And that we're no longer to be solely dependent on what we receive from other people to be the source of what we receive from God. God has called us to be His children, not grandchildren, not the sheep that are led by a human pastor. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to open the Scriptures to you. He wants to meet with you in your prayer closet and fill you with His Spirit and lead you and give you the sense that you belong to Him. And He calls you and I to come to the waters of the well to come to Jesus in our thirst, to grow up and to be filled. We're to grow up and roll away the stone. Secondly, we learn tonight that we're called to show up and roll up our sleeves, serving, being motivated by His love. Just as Jacob would serve seven years for Rachel, willing to give service, it seemed like a few days an easy service, motivated by a love for what he would receive. You and I are called to the same thing. We're here on this earth for a purpose. God has gifted us. God has gifted you. He's given you something that is so unique to you, it's like your fingerprint or your DNA. And there's a place for you in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, in some capacity, specifically mapped out and marked out by God for you that only you can fulfill. And He's waiting for you to open up your heart to His love that He might fill and motivate you onto that service. And when you do, you find true satisfaction. Not only isn't it a burden, but life begins to go by like this. Whoa, Lord. It's awesome. We're called to roll up our sleeves and serve Him, being motivated by Him. And number three, and finally, we're called to look up, to lift up our hands, and to find our satisfaction and our fullness in the Lord alone. The lesson that Leah learned through much labor, through not finding it in every source that she looked for it in, ultimately coming to God and saying, God, I will praise you. You are the one that's to be praised. It's not in my husband. It's not in my relationship. It's not in the success of my business. It's not in some hope. 
It's in you, and it's in you alone. You know what's amazing? I'm getting ahead of myself just a touch. But do you know that at the end of Jacob's life, he's going to look back on his two wives, and you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, it was Leah all along. It was Leah all along. The one that I looked over, the one that I thought was nothing. Bury me by Leah, Jacob is going to say. From Leah came Judah, the tribe through which Jesus Christ would come into the world, the tribe that would give Israel her kings. From Leah came Levi, as we saw in the text. It's the tribe that would give Israel her priesthood, the priesthood that foretold and spoke of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as it were, was formed. He came through Leah, the one that he didn't want. Maybe that thing in your life tonight that is such a burden, such a splinter, such a difficulty, the thing that you wouldn't prefer, that you might even say, I hate, that might be the very thing that at the end of your life you'll look back and you'll say, God, bury me by that splinter. That's how Christ was formed. That's where communion came. That's where I came to know you. Oh, Father, we just thank you for these things. They're so rich. Your word is so rich. It's so living. It touches us so personally. We ask tonight, Lord, that you take the things that we've heard, that you'd apply them in the way that you can and do, that you'd give us understanding in all things. I pray as we sing this song, as we stand in this place, as we wait in your presence, that you would give us a perfect clarity of heart and mind, that you would help us to see our lives, our path, our past, present, and future in the context of your call and your plan through the mirror of your word and the grace provided by your blood. And that, Lord, where we need to lay something down at the altar of praise, where we need to grow up, draw closer to you, where we need to be filled with your love, motivated the right way, Lord, whatever it is that we need tonight, we ask you, Lord, that you would be the need meter in this place. We believe that you've spoken, that you've revealed. And now we're asking that you would do what we cannot. So help us, Father. We look to you. We love you. We depend on you. We need you. May your hand, may your spirit be upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's all stand together.